Father, this morning, as we have set our attention on you through song and through prayer, we pray that you would fix our hearts on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That we would emulate the joy that you set before yourself. The joy of glory in heaven. The joy of victory in purchasing redemption for fallen people. And because of the work that you have accomplished, you have made it possible for us to do what we just sang. And that is to anticipate, to look forward to, to long for, to hope in future salvation that has a present reality, but will ultimately culminate in bowing before the throne, in celebrating the work of Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. Father, I pray that even in these moments, that if there's anyone here with us this morning who has never come to a place of recognition of who you are, has never bowed the knee, has never believed that Jesus is king, has never asked forgiveness of sins, has never uh, accepted your invitation of being their savior. Father, I pray, even in these moments, that you would give the gift of faith and let them believe that you might be Lord and savior for them today. For the rest of us who are looking into this word, may we submit ourselves to you And may the truths of the scripture resonate with clearer uh, knowledge and understanding. May we leave this place as those who not only embrace the truths in believing, but put these truths to work in practice so the world might see the Savior to whom we love and to whom we obey. Be pleased this morning. May your presence be known among us. Accomplish your purposes in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you to open your wor- uh, the word with me this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I, there's a, a Bible in the pew in front of you, and uh, it should be on page 1018. We're going to be in the little letter of Second Peter. So, page 1018, if you're using the pew Bible ahead of you, I would really encourage you to turn to the scriptures so that we can see this together as we're, as we're moving through the word together. A couple of weeks ago, we dealt with uh, the, the salutation, the, the introduction to this letter. And Peter is going to be picking up where he left off and continuing the sentence that he started in verse 2 and carrying along for us in verses 3 and 4. Let me remind us of those verses and then we'll dive into our study today. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter begins this letter 
And right here at the outset in verse 3, he's calling attention to something significant. He's calling attention to what, church? What do you see in the first, the opening phrase of verse 3? What does Peter want this church to understand? Divine power. They have access to power. And we're going to study what this power looks like, what this power accomplishes, and how we access this power. I was reminded in just thinking about some of my, my background as an engineer and some of my, my studies in school. Of course, power and energy and work are all formulas that kind of govern the, the systems in the natural world around us. And, and I was reminded of Newton's third law, which says, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Maybe you remember the, the mechanism, your science teacher, either in physics or some other department, may have, have shown it to you, or you've seen it on somebody's desk, you know, the steel balls hanging from the, the, the little suspended frame, right? And, and you pull one of those balls out, it, it, the potential energy drives it into the other balls, and the elasticity drives that energy to the other side, and those, that, the steel ball on the other side swings out, you know what I'm talking about? This is Newton's third law in motion. Every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> of course, that is true in the physical world. But make no mistake, it is not true in the spiritual one. There is no kung fu panda kind of yin and yang opposing spiritual equal forces that are represented in the spiritual realm. There is a supreme, preeminent, guiding, authoritative, overcoming power that God makes available to every believer in this room and every believer on this planet. It is the same power that spoke the world into existence the power of God that he makes available and accessible to every believer. That's what Peter wants this church to know. That's what Peter wants this church to understand because they're never going to enjoy the Christian life without divine power. Maybe like you, there have been situations in this life where you've thought, the Christian life is too hard. I can't do this. I feel so inadequate. I feel so weak. I feel so impotent without power. It's not because the power doesn't exist. It's because I have not accessed and you have not accessed divine power. Power from God. There is power. Power that is available to every believer. Every believer has access to power. And that's what Peter wants this church to understand this morning. It's overcoming power, victorious power, conquering preeminent power, the power of God that wins and wins every time. But the winning, the winning of the power of God is not always the prevailing power that we would, are come accustomed to. 
the, the, the power of God that, that always works in my favor on a, in a physical, in an outward kind of way, but it's the power of God to strengthen you in the struggle. The power of God to help you overcome in the struggle. The power of God that like Christ, he was able to submit himself to the will of the Father and move through a very difficult and very painful process of the cross. That is overcoming power. That is the power that God has made available to every believer who is here in this room today. There's power. And Peter wants this church to recognize this power. And he calls attention to this power in several different ways that I want to just call your attention to as well. It says in this opening phrase, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The English Standard Version doesn't really help us in this translation because there's a, there's a Greek word that they don't translate. It's the Greek word os, which is the word thus, or just as, or like. It is a marker of reason. It calls attention to how we experience all of the things that, that, that Peter has talked about in verses one and two. You, you, you can enjoy, in verse two, the grace and mercy of God through the conduit of power. This is a continuation of what Peter's already started to talk about. This is not a new thought. This is not a a new phrase that that, that Peter wants to draw attention to this continuing work of God in providing grace, that grace that comes through faith. Faith opens the door to all of God's gifts. And we see that in verse one. We see the faith that Peter calls attention to. He says in the English Standard Version, faith of equal standing. (laughs) That although Peter walked with Christ and enjoyed fellowship with Christ and in a personal relationship, he saw the miracles of Christ, he heard the words of Christ, he, he walked with him and fellowshiped with him. But this church was not at a disadvantage. This church had all the same benefits. They enjoyed the same precious faith. They believed. They believed in God and enjoyed the same faith. The New King James translates that phrase like precious faith. And I think that's important because as we move down to verse four, we're gonna see the same connection. Uh, the, the, The same word exists in verse four where he talks about very great and precious promises. Your faith is the conduit or the gateway for you to enjoy all the blessings that God would have to give to you. Faith is the door that opens the grace of God into your life. It's the pathway to enjoy all the gifts that God has for you. So what does this faith require? What, what, are the, what are the components of this faith? It's faith first that believes that, that there is a sin problem. Faith that recognizes that there is a brokenness and a deficiency in me. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of my deficiency, because of your deficiency, You are separated from God who is holy. He is just. He is pure. 
He dwells in unapproachable light. And the only way to get to God is by believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus alone took the penalty for my sins on himself on the cross. Romans 6.23 says, but the wages of sin is death. Meaning the penalty for my sin is death. But... The gift, here it is again, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That Jesus took my sin upon him and the wrath of God was poured out in full on Jesus on the cross. He paid the penalty. He paid the price. And so that if I believe that Jesus is the only way to God and I ask forgiveness for my sins. I make him the Lord and Savior of my life. Means he is the master. He calls the shots for me. Then I can enjoy the benefits of all of the, of the grace and the favor, the peace that verse 2 talks about in the continuing benefits we find in verses 3 and following. It comes through the gateway of faith. Of course, we know that faith itself is a gift. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. If you're here this morning and you've not, you've not yet believed in Jesus, Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's a simple transaction of faith in believing a gift that comes from God. It opens the gateway to blessing that we see in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus. Grace, which is the favor or benevolence or kindness and gift is what I'm referring to or keying in on here is the the gift of God to people. This concept of peace is the total well-being, not the absence of conflict or struggle but the confidence that God is in control. And we see that grace is active. The gift of God is activated through faith. It's not passive. Grace gives us access to God and thus access to his good gift of divine power. That's the second point here. That faith opens the door to receiving the gifts of God and that divine power is one of God's special gifts divine power. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is one of the most important points of this message. The power and strength and ability that you need for the Christian life does not come from you. It comes from God. It is not a power that is inherent within you. It is not a power that is dependent on you. It is a power, thus, that comes from God. It is a power that is unstoppable, a power that is unquenchable, unconquerable, and unmistakable. Because it is his power. More specifically, it's the power of Jesus. And Peter, even in these first two verses, he can't escape the wonder of his allegiance to Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ in verse one, the very first part. He's a slave and apostle to Jesus Christ. Christ, which is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises that that, uh, the Jews um, saw and, and looked forward to were fulfilled in Christ. 
Jesus, who is Savior, as we see in the second part of verse 1. He's the one who delivers us from our sins. And Jesus, who is Lord, who is Master, as we see in verse 2. It is his power that we're talking about. So if you've ever found yourself coming to the place of saying, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I have too much baggage. I have too much history. I have too many disadvantages. If, if you've come to the place of saying that, then you are not speaking or thinking biblically. And thus, you're not accessing the power that God has made available to you. The power to live the Christian life is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon Christ. And Christ is powerful. Christ is supreme. And his power is granted to you. Notice, it's the power that's been granted here in verse 3. And the promises that we're going to see in verse 4 that are also granted. These gifts continue to pour out and manifest themselves from God to his people. He delights in giving good gifts, good grace to his people. He does that through divine power in verse 3. He'll do that through uh, very great and precious promises in verse 4. But here, the word granted is a perfect passive participle. And the significance of that is it, it is something that looks back in the past. It sees a work that's been accomplished in the past that has present results. And because it's a participle, it's a, it's a work that will continue to have results all the way to the finish line. The storehouse of the gifts in grace, in power of God are untappable. And they're always accessible. They're always available. The, the God delights in giving his good gifts. There's a constant supply, an ever-ready source of God to provide his power to us. He's granted through benevolence to us. But it's up to us to use. The Apostle Paul, in speaking to the church of Ephesus, draws great attention to power. And the power that was available to this church, but a, but a power that they were blind to, that they didn't access, that they, they, they didn't um, uh, resource in their own life. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. I want to just draw our attention to how important this is because even for the Apostle Paul, he is praying and pleading with God to wake up this church and turn the lights on so they can see the power of God that's available to them. He says, and this I pray, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and here it is, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also which is to come. There is not a power that is in balance. There is a power that is supreme. It is a divine power that is far above exceeding power. It is unquenchable. 
this unconquerable kind of power that God makes available to every believer. That's the kind of power that Paul is praying that this church will understand. That's the kind of power that Peter is trying to allow the church that he's speaking to and writing to to understand the significance of. Open their eyes, Paul says. Turn the lights on. Help them to recognize what they have available to them. This power that is ready to be put to work. All we have to do is is uh, harness that power and, and put it to work in our life. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 continues to pray the same way. He says in verse 14 to 16, he's praying again to the Father. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And a couple of verses later, he talks about this power again. He can almost not put words to it in trying to describe how unbelievable this power is. He says, now to him, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul strings together this phrase of adverbs. He can't even begin to try to grasp or describe the kind of power that God has made available to his people. And the point of the power is the glory of God, not the glory of you. It's so that when people see the power of God working in your life to overcome the powers of this world, they will understand there's something that is a greater power at play. It must be the power of God. Towards the end of his letter in Ephesians, Paul comes back to this theme in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Every believer has access to power. Power that comes through faith. Power that is a gift of God to us. And this gift, this third point, this gift that strengthens us for every aspect of life. What is the point of this power? What is this power meant to accomplish? How do you know that this power is being used in your everyday life? Well, it will strengthen you in every aspect of life. Notice, it's a power granted to us in all things that pertain to life and godliness. He uses the word all things to describe totality, to to describe comprehensiveness. Nothing is lacking. Everything is present. There is no need for an outside source. There's no resource that isn't already provided. God hasn't forgotten to add something to the equation or he has left us without the tools to accomplish the objectives that he's called us to perform. And God hasn't created a graduation system so that in some way you graduate to the next level of maturity and have access to a new dimension of power. All the power of God, of the universe, the divine power is accessible to every believer at the moment of conversion. God has allowed us to enjoy the benefits 
of power without a treasure hunt. God has put the resources in arm's reach. He's made them accessible. From moment to moment, he's allowed us to enjoy the benefits of his power, which are meant to be applied to all of life, life in godliness. And here he's defining the realm of sanctification, uh, the living from the moment of conversion to the moment of glorification in all of its totality, from the initial inception of relationship with God to the time he takes us to be in heaven with him. All of life is included, every dimension. He's given us power to live his way, to perform and carry out the standards that he's called us to. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes it this way in verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now that's an overstatement, but here's how obedience happens. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. With the power of God at work in our life, there will be obvious change. There will be noticeable differences. We talked a couple of years ago, we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the other because of the working of the Spirit, that divine power is working in us and changing us. And as we'll pick this up next week in verses 5 to 7, we'll see this ever-growing change of character where faith leads to virtue and virtue leads to greater knowledge and knowledge leads to self-control and self-control to steadfastness and then to godliness and then to brotherly affection and then to love. That God produces spiritual maturity. There is a growing, there is a moving, there is a flourishing, there is a producing of the Christian life and obeying that comes from God's power, not a power that is resident within you. So as we evaluate our Christian life, as we see whether or not the power of God is present, we must come to a place of, of recognizing that, that whatever deficiencies are there require not a, an inherent power within us, not greater discipline, not greater attention to the things that we must do, but a greater commitment in yielding and submitting to power of God. And every believer has access to it, but not every believer uses it. And that's where I want to turn next. What every believer must do to enjoy or experience divine power. What do you need to do? As you evaluate your life and you see the brokenness, you see the stumbling, you see the lack of spiritual priority, you see the, the evidence of, of sin in your life and the shipwreck that it causes all around you. How do you access the power of God? Well, Peter will begin to give us some of the tools that we need to know in order to call attention to power and make it work in our life. First, he says, you must pursue the knowledge of God. Pursue the knowledge of God. He says here in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
through the knowledge of him. You must pursue the knowledge of God. This word through is the word dia. It's a marker of agency. It shows instrumentation. It helps us know how this can be accomplished, that God has provided the the agency or the instrumentation for us to, to accomplish the things he's called us to do. And it happens through pursuit of knowledge of him. The word that Peter uses of knowledge is unique. It's the normal word gnosis with a prefix. And that prefix wants to call attention to the fact that this is personal, intimate, striving for knowledge. It's a knowledge that is intensive. It expresses a more thorough participation of acquiring the knowledge on the part of the learner. In the New Testament, it often refers to knowledge which powerfully influences the form of religion, that that powerfully affects the person who is growing in knowledge and moves them to discovery of God. There is this personal involvement, personal investment. And then when used with an object, as it is here, it describes a relationship of the learner to the object and specifically the relationship that we have with God, with Jesus. And that knowledge of God drives us to pursue and enjoy the power of God. This word for knowledge is also referring to this encounter with Christ. It's a full and rich and thorough kind of knowledge which involves a degree of intimate understanding. It's not academic. It's not theologically, it's not theological merely. It's not, but it's knowledge through experience. It's finding that everything that Jesus claims to be is in fact true about him. We find that he is comfort in our pain. We find that he is truly peace in the midst of conflict. We discover that he really is provision in times of want. We recognize that he is a friend in the face of rejection. We see that he is wisdom in the, in the situations of uncertainty. We find that he is strength when we are particularly weak. We understand his truth in the face of lies. We see stability in him in a world that is totally uh, shifting and moving. We come to see and to know that Jesus is, in fact, all he claims to be. As we jettison the things that we of this world that we put our hope and faith and confidence in and we receive Jesus as the only one who can meet those needs, knowledge of him will help to strengthen our life. And this is the Apostle Paul's supreme objective. This is his single objective that we find in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. He says... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That all the things that the Apostle Paul used to put his confidence in, 
his lineage, his heritage as a Jew, his circumcision, his performance, his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, all of those things he jettisoned to embrace and to know and enjoy as a singular confidence the work of God, the power of Christ, the certainty and the confidence in all that Christ alone could accomplish for him. And he wanted to know it and experience it in a personal way. He wanted to know that Jesus was, in fact, trustworthy. Especially as, as, as Paul would walk through suffering, he would experience hardship and persecution. And he would come to know the power of God in stabilizing him and carrying him through the hardships of life. He would come to know power as he experienced death and persecution of all those dreams and all of those things that he had once put his certainty and confidence in. You need to recognize and pursue the knowledge of God. We pursue knowledge not only by studying the word of God, we pursue knowledge by speaking the word of God. The, the, the benefit is you see these, uh, these new banners that are up here describing kind of the core values of our church. There is a, a sense in which we encourage and build each other up, this building which leads every person one step closer to Jesus. Meaning there are experiences that, that, that each of you have because you've gone through certain hardships and you've seen the beauty of Christ and the, and the confidence that you can have in Christ. And as you inform one another about the person of Christ, we grow in our relationship with him and maturity spiritually as we learn more about who Christ is and what Christ can do for us. Third, or second, you must be attracted to the beauty of God. You must pursue the knowledge of God. You must also be attracted to the beauty of God. It says here, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Peter uses this word called, which is the word Eclectos, it's the word for, for elect. This is the divine work of God that we, we talked about in 1 Peter. But he adds an element here. He adds an element that, that talks about the, the calling of, of Christ, but we're called to or we're called by his glory and excellence, which means we see the glory of God. We see the excellence of God, which is the virtue and beauty and wonder and majesty of God, and it compels us to him. As he opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, as he sets his affection on us and gives us the gift of faith, we see in Christ all that we've ever wanted. He becomes beautiful to us and we pursue him because of his loveliness, because of his excellence, because of his glory. The Apostle Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes to see the loveliness of Jesus. 
the glory of Christ, and he informs our heart with, with a knowledge of him and all that he came to do, and our heart is, is set on him and desires him. You know, as people, we are compelled by beauty. You know, as people, we pursue that which we find most attractive, that which is most compelling, that which is most beautiful, that which seems most comfortable and beneficial. And so as we, as we come to understand the beauty and the wonder of who Christ is, it will, it will draw us to him. And so the correlation is also true that you look at a life and you see what they're chasing you look at a life and you see what consumes their every day, what seems to, to govern their priorities and, and to, to, uh, to, to take their resources, and you begin to know what they find most beautiful. Those who come to be attracted and compelled by the loveliness of Christ will be drawn to him will be attracted by him, will set their affection on him. It will compel them to him. This is the excellence, that, the excellence or the virtue that we see in God that we then begin to emulate in verse 5, and we'll see that next week. It says, for this reason in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue is this word excellence. And so what we see in Christ, we seek to emulate. And that, sh that should sound familiar as we'll move to this next section. You must trust in the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. Verse 4 says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Again, he uses this word os, or by which, it's a, it's a way for us to know how this is all accomplished. How, how does this uh, come to fruition in the life of a believer? It happens as we understand the promises that have been granted to us by God. Any of you who know the Shear family know there was a significant promise of the Mahaffey family. You know there was a significant promise that happened uh, last Saturday. Not yesterday, but the week before. A promise between two partners that, that came in covenant with one another. A, a promise that, that will set the tone for, for how their relationship to one another will look, how it will last. God has given to us what he says, what, what Peter says is very great and precious promises. The promises of God which help us to understand the significance of this relationship that we have with him. So what promises is Peter referring to? Certainly he's referring to promises that relate to salvation, the inheritance that we have in heaven, the forgiveness that we have because of Christ, the cleansing work of salvation, the future benefits of heaven, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. But, but as we'll keep reading in the, this little letter of 2 Peter, we'll see that Peter has a different kind of promises in mind. He has eschatological promises in view. Notice 2 Peter 3, 4. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9, 
Verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The very great and precious promises that Peter has in mind are the kinds of promises that help us to recognize there is a future coming of Christ. There will be a future judgment. It creates urgency in the people of God to live in a way that is representative of a perfect and holy judge who will evaluate their life because vengeance is his, declares the Lord. And we understand the significance of this coming of Christ And because of his coming, we live in a way that shows a heart of obedience and alignment to him. him. Peter will say the same thing in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look forward to future promises, the coming of Christ, his revelation, and let that settle your hearts. And then in verse 14, it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's what will be happening as we set our hearts on future grace. That's what we looked at in 1 Peter. He reiterates the same uh, statement and truth here in 2 Peter. And finally, and quickly, you must participate in the nature of God. You must participate in the nature of God. He says here at the very end of verse 4, so that through them you may become partakers. It's through these promises recognizing the, the impending and uh, the coming of Christ, through these promises, you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This word partaker is really the word for fellowship. Those who fellowship with the divine nature, those who enjoy the benefits of relationship with God, Those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit will enjoy this fellowshipping work of power, the Spirit who works out these things in their life and leads them to holiness. Those who fellowship with God will be like God. We find that throughout the entire New Testament, but especially in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll just close with this verse. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God, through his power, has given us the ability and the strength to live in a way that shows that we have escaped the corruption of the passions of this world. We're able to live in a way that emulates our Savior. And so when we do this, when, when we show the power of God working in our life in this way, we call attention to the glory of the gospel. 
We show that the gospel is real. And they may not believe all of the, all of the intricacies of the gospel, when, but when they see the power of God working in your life to overcome the passions of this world, they'll say, there must be something true about this gospel message because I'm seeing power, the power of God at work in the life of this individual. May God help us to show the power and access the power this week. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that you've given us your divine power. It belongs to you. It's yours. And you have, you have made it available to us. May we as your people not only know about this power, but help us to access this power day by day so that we can be a conduit of grace to others, faith and grace to others. May we see your power at work in the gospel to draw people to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.